Morning Portico. You're not going to want to miss that night. That's uh, next Sunday night on the 17th. Uh, we're going to be in Mississauga at 6 o'clock, and it's going to be an amazing night. And it's for anyone who's interested in, uh, in faith, in astrology, in the stars. We're going to be able to see how God put together the heavens as a, as a message to us as the message to humans that his son Jesus came 2,000 years ago and it was all designed and it's all told through the zodiac signs. Great night to be there. You won't want to miss it. Check your bulletins for details about what's happening the next few weeks. We're starting a midweek programs. It'll just be in Mississauga for this semester, so make sure if you're interested in a midweek program, then check into that. If you are visiting with us, my name is Rick. I'm the campus pastor here. We have a campus in Mississauga as well as here in Milton, and we do have one that meets in Espanol. So if you can't understand what I'm saying, we, and you, maybe we have a different campus for you. No, 76% of Americans last year, they completed at least one entire book. They opened page one and they finished page 100 or 200 or however long that book was. They admitted that they would, that 76%, three out of four Americans finished the book front to back. Now, not shockingly, more Canadians finish books than Americans finish books. If there's any Americans here, I'm standing by that statement. We have 88% of Canadians finished a book as well. By a show of hands, who would reasonably feel comfortable saying they finished a book front to back? Even if it was with your kids and it was uh, Thomas the Tank or something, you finished finished the book. Um, For those of us who read What we discovered that the way that we read is changing. 25% didn't want to go through pages. They wanted to listen to the book. So whether it was on their commute or or just sitting at home at nights, they they did audiobooks. Some of you listened to a book on your way to to bed. And some people, maybe you felt like you finished a book, but it just read all through the night. And you were just hoping by osmosis you finished that book. Other people, you're going more to the tablet form. 58% of people finished a book on an e-book. But the way that we ingest material is not as important as it is still good to know that we are reading still as a society. We do know one thing, though. We are definitely reading the Bible a whole lot less. In the past 30 years, the numbers have dropped. Shocking stats. We looked at some of these in our series back in the fall. It used to be that 25% of Canadians read the Bible in a given week. They would say, yeah, I'd read a a portion of the Bible. That was 30 years ago. We're now down in 2013 was the last big census that was done about this. And we found that 11% of Canadians, one in 10, will read the Bible at all in a given week. And as for reading the Bible front to back, cover to cover, well, how did you do on your Life Journal reading passage last year? Anybody, anybody, anybody finish on? There was a few people that finished 100% out of the whole church. Out of 3,000 people that meet together in Portico, we knew that there was only a few people that said, yeah, I finished the whole thing front to back, cover to cover. The Bible is still the world's best-selling book of all time. There are 5 billion copies of the Bible in print today in over 900 languages. Our family was talking about this last night, how many different languages are, are uh, translated for the Bible. If you have your version app on your smartphone or your tablet, there were over 202 million downloads of the version app. We have it in print. We have it on, on, our, on our phones, on our devices. And in a culture that reads less, We definitely read the Bible less, but we know that there is something unique, something that intrigues us about the Bible, that even though we're not reading it as much, there's something that's drawing us back to it. What is it that brings us back to the Bible? 
It's some of the coolest and strangest stories that have ever been told are in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament before, but I was just flipping through some of my favorite stories. In 1 Samuel 18, David wanted to marry the king's daughter. And I don't know how many of you know what the dowry was for permission to marry the king's daughter. If you don't, look it up, 1 Samuel 18. It's a neat one. Um, Hopefully you're not asking. Hopefully we're not having that in our culture today, but I'm I'm not here to judge. 2 Kings 2. Elisha the prophet, he was God's prophet, he was being made fun of, and he found a creative way to teach kids a lesson about making fun of their elders. He prayed that a bear would attack these kids, and it did. Yeah, great story, 2 Kings 2, read that one as well. In Numbers 22, I believe, Disney had their inspiration for Shrek and Donkey, where there was a talking donkey, and if we look in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we see there's all this war, and there's gory details, there's all kinds of intermingled sex stories and terrorism and racism and miracles and war. The kinds of stuff we don't allow on our screens is all in the Bible. And at the same time, it promises hope to us. It promises truth and life to us. And here we are in week two of our series. We're looking at interrogating the Christian faith. We want to look at, can the Bible be trusted? So this morning, you can take notes. If you have the Portico app, all your notes are right in there. You can download the app, if not, on any of your smartphones or devices. If you want to follow along with a copy of the Bible, you don't have one this morning, you can lift up your hand, and we have some to uh, borrow at the back. Art will make sure that you get a copy of the Bible. You can just flip along with us this morning. Your notes are also in that Portico app. So make sure you're following along. I think they're even in, are they in the bulletin, Leslie? Are the, are the, are the notes in the bulletin this morning? Oh, look at that. We've got all sources covered this morning. So we're going to be following along week two, can the Bible be trusted or is it just a myth? And we're going to go to a story of the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, and they were meeting Jesus for the very first time or one of the first times for some of them, but for others the very first time after he'd been killed, he'd been murdered. Um, The grave was empty, so person dies, he's put in this tomb, he's no longer there. There's rumors circulating about was he, did he come back to life? Was there this resurrection? Did the disciples steal his body? What was, what was going on? Some people said that Peter and John, his closest friends, had met him and Mary had met him. And some were not so sure that these stories that were being told and being circulated could be trusted. So we're going to look at what happens in John 20, 26 through 31. You can turn there now. Fourth book in the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible. And let's read this together. Uh, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. That's a pretty outrageous claim. The doors were locked. Jesus just appears. And he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and then put it in my side. Again, where Jesus would have been uh, when, they were, when he was on the cross. He would have been stabbed there. There would have been a large scar. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, He's recognizing Jesus. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas, one of Jesus' most close followers, one of the ones who he would have called a friend, He hears the story of Jesus being raised from the dead, and he thinks, I'm not so sure about that. (laughs) That's kind of an outrageous claim. I'm not into it until I can see it, until somebody can prove it to me physically, until Jesus shows up and speaks to me. I'm not believing what people 
are saying. And if Thomas, a person who was with Jesus when Jesus was talking about that he was going to have to die and was talking about the prophecies about a resurrection, if he couldn't believe it, it's not hard for us to understand why in 2016 some people in our culture have trouble figuring out can the Bible actually be trusted. And we have books that are written that tell us why the Bible can and can't be trusted. We have we have, it, they're both um, fiction and nonfiction books, disproving the story of Jesus, or at least bringing the credibility of Jesus' claims into question. We have things like carbon dating, and some of them, sometimes carbon dating will show exactly, well, we can see biblical timelines in there. Other times we have carbon dating and saying, well, you're only a few billion or trillion years off, Bible. And we, we're, we're seeing that disproved and proved the Bible. We have stories of virgins having babies and dead people living the Bible, at least for sure, we can say, has a credibility issue in our culture. And this morning, what our goal is, is to look at the Bible both as a historical book and a religious work and see if there's reason for us to have confidence of can the Bible be trusted. Now, our Sunday series, we're in this series interrogating our faith for six weeks. It's based on a book called, uh, uh, Timothy Keller's book called The Reason for God. And you can buy it. Mark, where's Mark? Mark, give me a wave. Where are you? Mark's there at the back. He's going to be selling that book. Uh, I, he didn't write it, but he's just going to be selling it and taking the profits. Uh, no, he, he's, uh, he's selling it because we know that some of you may be interested in reading along through the, through the six weeks. You can buy it at Amazon online or something like that too, but we have made it available for you down at the information table for $15, and that's after the service. You could, $10. <laughs> I was trying to get him five more dollars. It's, a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's $10. You can get it for, uh, for Mark after the service. But our series has been designed with two purposes. Number one, it's for the skeptic. It's for somebody that comes to church. You're either here or you're listening to this message online afterwards, and you don't believe this stuff. And we want to take a look at can we have faith? Can, can we have faith in a God? Can we have faith in the Bible? Can we have faith in something like miracles? We're going to look at all these for six weeks, and we're going to take a look at it from the skeptic side. And for the side of those who are already convinced, you would call yourself believers. Remember last week, we looked at sometimes we believe with blind faith, and we don't take an intellectual look at our faith. And we're going to see that, yes, we can have an intellectual side to our faith. And for some of us who get caught too much on the intellectual side, we're going to say, and there's a part of the heart and the hands that have to be engaged as well, not just the mind. So with that framework and that understanding in mind, let's take a look at the Bible. And the first thing that we'll see is that the Bible is historically credible. When you understand the authorship and the way the Bible was pieced together, it gives you a better appreciation for the work as a whole. Now, when you, when you look at a typical religious text, here's what we see. Most religious texts are the teaching of one individual, and they came together in a very concise period of time. The Quran, for example, was written over 23 years. It was the revelation to the prophet Muhammad. And the Quran, it's, it's the teachings in there. And they're put together of, of what God spoke to, what he says God spoke to him, and re, he's revealed to people. We have the teachings of Buddha, which were attributed to one specific Buddha, the Buddha Gautama. And we look at that, and, and most of the teachings and the beliefs in Buddhism come from there. Even in Hinduism, it's based on an oral tradition that was passed down over thousands of years, but there are four main teachers and texts that are brought together. So that's what we see typically from a religious text. Now let's go to the Bible and take a look. How was the Bible put together? The Bible is based on an oral tradition of 4,000 years. It was penned over a 1,500-year period by 39 different authors. These authors ranged 
from kings of nations to shepherds carrying uh, f- farmers, basically. They were, it was written by nomads going across the country and wild people to doctors. They were letters to individual people. It was poetry. It was prophecy. It was history. It's not even just one work. It's 66 unique books that were written on three continents, and the majority of the books were written, and the people had no knowledge that anyone else was writing, and they definitely didn't know that it would be used for study in faith. And yet, with all the diversity of how the Bible was created, we have one central theme in the text, perfect harmony of a loving God who is on a quest to return to perfect relationship with his created beings. It starts in the Garden of Eden, broken by sin and death was going to be required to pay for sin. And there were hundreds of promises recorded over centuries of individuals who lived in all different places going across the countryside, sometimes settled, sometimes not, and they were prophesying about a Messiah who would come and bridge that original gap. And it all ends with the life of Jesus saying that he was the one. And then we look at the Gospels and we see that that Jesus says, I'm the one that's fulfilling these century-old promises, and he was killed and he came back to life. And then his followers finished off the Bible, writing letters and telling people about another future promise of one day when he's coming back. And then in the fourth century, the church, the followers of Jesus, the Christians, Christ's followers get together and they say, we're going to put together the 66 books that we agree upon as scripture and that were written. And the New Testament were all writers that had a personal encounter with Jesus. And the Old Testament all came from the Jewish uh, heritage and Jewish culture. And if that's a coincidence, that's one heck of a coincidence that it all came together that way. And so when we read something like 2 Timothy 3 and 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We see that and we go, God put the Bible together. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't the work of humans putting it together. We believe that God spoke to different people through 4,000 years, 1,500 years specific in writing it down. We have difficulty. Have you ever tried to write a story? Like, go back to your school days. You're writing a story, okay? So you write out page one, and then it's dinner time, and mom calls you for dinner, and you go back to finish that story after dinner. You have no idea what you wrote on page one, right? When you go, what did I write there? Let me see. And sometimes we get these disjointed stories when we're writing just one novel. 4,000 years, 39 authors, 66 books, one message. That's why we say it's God-breathed. Because God spoke to individuals for us to have the Bible. Here's what we see in 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21. This is, one, this is from the New Testament, one of Jesus' followers. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's talking about when Jesus would come back. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its own origin in the human will, but prophets through humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible's different. We don't claim to say, hey, we've got a take on God and we wrote it down. We say God spoke and we're just revealing it. And what we hold in our hands when we hold the Bible are not the teachings of an enlightened person. It's not just containing God's word. It is God's word. And for some of us, it's enough for us to take that at face value and say, I can believe that. For others, we need more proof. We need to look at some of the historical claims that the Bible makes 
and wonder if any of it, has it ever been verified from an outside source? We see this happening all the time. And it, it's, it always amazes me when something is verified from an outside source that the Bible has been proclaiming for thousands of years. And we go, look what we've discovered. And we go, no, you've just understood what the Bible has said. Most, most recently in 2013, I don't know if anyone was on the, um, on the trip that Portico took a group over to Israel and they visited the places that are listed in the Bible. But they went, to, uh, they went to the site of an archaeological dig that had turned up a bowl approximately from the 7th century time period. And in it, there was an inscription on it. And here's what it said. The name on the bowl, and we can see this, this piece here, it was Zechariah ben Benaiah, or Zechariah, son of Benaiah, and the father of the prophet Jehaziel. Okay, does anyone have their Bible quickly? Do you have your, anyone have a Bible? Go to 2 Chronicles 20 and 14. If you have your Bible, read this out for me. 2 Chronicles 20 and 14. So on that piece of pottery that was discovered in this archaeological dig saying, Zechariah ben Benaiah, or Zechariah son of Benaiah, the father of the prophet Jehaziel. What would have been taking place in the 7th century and we get to this archaeological dig and we see a bowl that says, there's a person that existed who was this person's name, son of this person. Do we know that it's precisely that person? We don't know. But can we trust and believe? I can. Because I can say it's unbelievable how many times we can figure out that the Bible is proved to be historically accurate. Now, if you're, if you're not in a small group and what we're calling growth groups now, grow is one of our, we have connect, grow, and serve. Those are our three values. And grow is our middle value. And it's, uh, it's, it's where we meet and we take the teaching that we have on Sunday and we go and we discuss it with our friends and we build up our faith a little more. We challenge our faith. And this week in the video that we're going to be watching from Timothy Keller, it looks about all these things that, that claim against the Bible as a historically accurate, accurate document. We're going to look at evolution. We're going to look at dinosaurs. We're going to talk about carbon dating. And we know we have a 30-minute window on Sunday mornings, and then your brain goes off. You're tuning me out. So we're, we're going to try and stay to, that, stay to that window. And we can't make uh, an, 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 arg- an argument that brings in all these factors. But what we do know is that time and again, historical facts, scientific data, even cultural reference proves that the Bible has credibility as a historical source. And what we want to do is say, now in your, in your groups this week, set aside some time so you can talk about what you know about evolution, what you know about the Bible, what you, what you know about history. And maybe if you don't know anything, this is a just time to come and learn and listen and just offer your opinion. And if you don't have a growth group, we'll help you start one. Don't worry about that. Talk to us after, after the service. Make sure you're meeting together with, with another group of people. But we see that the Bible is historically credible you know what we also see? We also see that the Bible is factually reliable. So not just the history of it, but the facts that it talks about are reliable. And one of the greatest criticisms ever against the Bible is that there's numerous contradictions. We see that Judas, if you know this, Judas was paid a sum of money to betray Jesus. And there were leaders that came and they gave him 30 silver coins or however much we want to we attribute to that. And in one text, we see that Judas, when he figured out what he'd done, he took the money and he, and he threw the money down and he ran away. And then in another account, we see that Judas took the money that he received and he bought a piece of land with the money. Well, how can you throw money away and purchase a piece of land with it? We see that Jesus' father was Joseph, son of Heli, but he was also Joseph, son of Jacob, in two different places, is listed as, well, how can you have two different fathers? 
Numbers says all the time that God is not like men, that he should change his mind. But there are countless times in the Bible where it's referred to God having a change of heart and being compassionate on people. We get all these contradictions that we see. And some people say, well, well then the Bible's not uh, a credibly uh, or, or a reliable source for its facts. Now, there are some simple explanations. We know that Jacob, um, for Joseph, well, Joseph, Joseph's direct father, we believe, would be Heli, but he was from the line of Jacob, not he would be a distant forefather. And we, and we would believe that, well, God doesn't change his mind. It's such that when we ask for forgiveness, he grants it, and God has always said that I will give, he wants to give forgiveness for the sin. But more specifically, why do the details seem to, seem to line up against each other? Most of the Bible, well, a lot of the Bible is written as an eyewitness account. In fact, most of the New Testament is completely, and when we look at the Gospels, it's an eyewitness account. And that's the part, if we really want to get into it, that's the part where most people have problems with the, with the Bible. We look at Jesus was God's son, and then he died and came back to life, and he did these miracles. That's the stuff that I can't believe in. I can believe in, hey, the righteous living, the good stuff, treat one another well. I can believe in that. But the actual claim that Jesus was God's son, I'm not sure that I can, I can believe in that. And then we see contradictions. Uh, did he feed 4,000 people or 5,000 people? Or when he died, there were, things, there were all these different things. What did he say when he died? Into your hands I commit my spirit? Or did he say, is it finished? We've heard all these things. So what's going on here? Well, police use eyewitness accounts sometimes when they arrive at the scene of a car accident, right? They say, what did you see happen? And police know this, that eyewitness accounts can often be the least reliable sources when we're trying to prove a fact because typically, eyewitness accounts will contradict one another. I'm not sure if you've seen this. We're going to go to a video here. Johanna's going to cue it up for us. I'm not sure if you've seen this eyewitness self-test about, about watching and what you see happening, but I want you to watch the video and do a little self-test on how you would rate as an eyewitness. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected <laughs> events. And that's the monkey business illusion. Learn more Who missed about the gorilla? this and the original yeah. gorilla experiment <laughs> Look at, this. at the we, There was a gorilla that walked into that screen, pounded, and if you don't the believe it, you can watch it afterwards. It was there, number one time. He walks in, he does the exact same thing. We don't even see a gorilla that walks into the middle. Why? Because you're looking for, you're looking for the passes. You're focused on one thing. What you're interested in, that's what you see, and you would report there were six girls, they were passing the ball, some were black, some were white, and they passed the ball 16 times. 
there was a gorilla that walked into the middle of that, but you would never have reported that. Now, some people who knew to look for the gorilla, you look for the gorilla. I, I'd seen this test before, and I had no idea that the, one, that the one girl in black left. I just saw the gorilla came in. I had no idea that the background changed. We can usually see what we're looking for, but we miss pieces of what's happening all the time. And car accident witnesses will say things like this. Well, the guy from behind, he was going way too fast. And he ran right into the back of the person. And somebody will say, mm, I watched the person in front and they slammed on the brakes. There was, no, there was no way that person was going too fast. If that person hadn't have slammed on the brakes, it would have been easily. And then somebody else will say, you know, there was a squirrel that ran out onto the road and there was a car over here that swerved so that this, both people weren't watching and they hit. And you know what's probably true? All things are probably true. <laughs> All three things happen. We don't make stuff up more often than not, hopefully. I'm not going to judge anyone if you do, but hopefully we don't make things up. Hopefully we're reporting on what we see. It's quite likely that everything happens. And then when we get an account of Jesus, well, he said this from the cross. He said this from the cross. He said this from the cross. He probably said it all from the cross. (laughs) We believe that he did it all. It's just that eyewitness accounts will tell seven different things. Judas probably took some of the money and he threw it away in disgust. He also probably used some of the money to buy land that where he, where he would commit suicide. We actually can have greater reliance that we have a factually reliable idea of what happened at the time of Jesus because we have all these details, because we don't believe that people are making it up. If you go to the book of Luke, and we'll put it on the screen, Luke was a doctor, and look how Luke starts his unique book as he authored the Bible. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word and servants of God, or or Jesus. With, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things that you have been taught. Now, there's probably many of you who have been reading the Bible for years and you didn't know why the book of Luke was written or you would have assumed that Luke was one of Jesus' followers. He wasn't. Luke was a doctor who was writing a summation of what he had heard from the disciples for Theophilus, who was a ruler. And Luke starts off by saying, I'm writing this down because I've corroborated stories and I've validated people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus and this is what happened. And it's interesting to note a few things that might help us with a little bit of our disbelief as well. Do you know when fiction writing started? Fiction writing started in the mid, in the mid 15, in 1500, 1600, so the 16th century. That's when we first see fiction writing happening. We can almost be certain that the disciples didn't conspire to write the only fiction legend that ever existed before the, middle of the, before the 1500s in the middle of the second century. We can be pretty sure that they didn't do that. And what's more is that when we look at the stories, we can see how detailed they are that there can't be fabricated stories. And uh, the, Tim Keller gets into this book. But we see in Mark 4 and 38, they say, where was Jesus on the boat? Well, he was on the stern of the boat. And then when we see when, um, when Jesus encounters the disciples in John 21 and 8, and they were fishing and he was on shore, when Jesus saw the disciples from the shore and he told them to throw the nets out, he said, it was full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, why would you make up a detail like 153 fish unless they counted that there were 153 fish? 
And we look at it from our human perspective, or from our 2016 perspective, and we say, if I was going to write a story, well, I would include specific details of where he was on the boat, how many fish there were. You and I would definitely do that. Back then, they wouldn't have done that. The only reason why details were accounted for with, with such specifics was when they were creating a historical document because that gave it accuracy. That was a way of proving it. And we can see from historical documents at the time that that's the tool that they use. And it wasn't until much, much later that we would have started adding detail like that into any kind of fiction. And then we go, consider for a moment, if you were going to write a tale, even if, you, even if those things don't convince you, if you were going to fabricate the tale of a superhero godman, how much time would you spend focused on the part of his life when he was betrayed, when even the superhero Jesus questions his calling, and then where he's killed? How much of the time, if, when you're writing out his story, would you devote to that part of the story? The Gospels individually each devote at least 30%, some of them over 50% of the story of the, in the Gospels is in the last week of Jesus' life when he's betrayed and when Jesus specifically asks his father, if there's another way, let's do it another way because I'm not really up for this right now. But if it must be this way, then I'll trust you. In this last week, Jesus' protege, Peter, he turns away and denies even ever knowing Jesus and many other followers lose heart, but that's the part that the Gospels focus on. Why such unequal focus on a week that works against creating credibility for Jesus as God if the legend was truly created to deceive other people? I love that John even says near the end of his book, he says, I could fill all the books in the world telling you all the amazing things that Jesus did. And we read it in our, in our initial passage as well. There are many more stories that I could tell you about what he did, but they're not listed here. He doesn't want to spend his time on the amazing stories of Jesus' miracles. He wants to focus on the last week. And why? Because people didn't write the Bible. People didn't have the authorship. God has the authorship. And it only makes sense is if that's what God wanted. And the last week of Jesus' life was where he fulfilled the promise that had been interwoven through the rest of the scriptures for the previous 4,000 years of history that was leading up to this point in time. That's why the focus on that one week. The Bible is a credible source. It's proven historically. The details we read are reliable, but none of it matters. None of it even matters unless we make it personally applicable. That's our last blank this morning. In actuality, the Bible was never written to answer the questions of how and when, which is what history answers, which is what science answers, how and when. Oftentimes, the Bible was written only to answer who and why. The who is God and the why is because he loves us so much that he wants to restore a perfect relationship with us, a relationship that we violated in the first place. We see it right back in that initial text we, we read, John 20 and 31. These things are written that you may believe. And you can listen to a message like this, and it doesn't matter if I make a case, a legitimate case, for the veracity of the Bible. Our communication team feels like we did some good work putting this, this, this text together, this, this argument together, saying, yeah, there is truth that we can find in the Bible. Some of the arguments that Tim Keller makes as a respected theologian and, and a respected author, they may not convince you unless you ever decide, I'm going to buy into this because of faith. The things that have the most significance in our hearts and lives, consider this, things that are most significant in our lives are things that you've chosen to believe in. 
when you signed your job contract, you chose to believe that your employer would peg you, would treat you fairly, might even pay you and treat you well. But you had to choose that when you sign that, you know, they're going to honor that. And if you mistrust it, well, it's hard to stay there. Let's go a little bit deeper. Let's go into relationships. When you look at another individual and you trust another person that they're going to care for you, that they're going to protect you, that they're going to protect your heart, protect everything that's important to you, it doesn't work if you don't trust the other person and you hold back some of who you are. Because the first time that things start to go south, whether it's business or relationship or in your faith, when it's challenged, you'll run if you've never taken that jump of faith. And if you've questioned whether or not the Bible's 100% true, whether what God is saying can be trusted, it doesn't work. <laughs> For all this to matter, it requires 100% trust. Here's what we read in Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We flip ahead to verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I was listening to the Mississauga podcast this past week, and Pastor Doug, he went rogue, and he ad-libbed a little bit. He broke from our prepared notes, and he issued a challenge to the church, and I told him, yeah, we're a week behind, but we're smarter and more talented, so we'll catch up. Don't worry. (laughs) He said, if you've never read the Bible with regularity in your life... Would you commit January 2016, this is when we make New Year's resolutions, would you commit to at least reading a little bit of it each day? As a church, we spell out the life journal, and that's what our prepared note said, and that's what I shared last week, (laughs) that we are going to commit to following through on our life journal passages where we read one or two chapters of the Bible, and over the course of the year, we actually finish that. But Pastor Doug said, you know what, maybe for some of you that's too much to say, I'll read a chapter. Would you just read a a portion of scripture every day in January with a different lens and saying, I'm going to believe this is 100% true, not only true for the people that lived way back when, when they wrote it down or they passed it down orally, but true for me today. And he said, let's start in the book of Mark. And the reason why we would start in the book of Mark is because Mark tells the whole story of Jesus and it stays away from the abstract and the difficult to understand language. Whatever it is for you, whether it's you're going to commit to the Life Journal, whether you're going to commit to Mark, as a church, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It was put together by people just like you and I who had given their life over to to hearing God's voice and sharing it with those around them. It doesn't just contain truth. It is truth. It is God's Word. It has the power to give hope. It has the power to bring life to things that have been dead. It has the ability to shed truth into things that once lacked clarity. We're going to end our service this morning with a song that we sang last week. And all it says is that I believe in God, our Father, and I believe in Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Bible and we believe in the church. And we want to make this as a declarative statement that, again, as we start this new year, that we would believe that, God, you gave us your word. And we're going to give it a chance. We're not going to question it. We're going to buy in 100% and see what that looks like and feels like when we accept your word at this level. Would you stand with me this morning? And as Pastor Heather leads us, we'll come back and close in a moment. Before every service, those who are serving, kids ministry, set up teams, ushers, up on stage, we meet together and we pray. And today, as we were, as we were just praying, 
uh, one of the one of the texts from from the Bible that came to our hearts was the parables that Jesus told, and he told the parable of of a lost sheep, and he told the parable of a lost coin, and and the basic gist of the story, if you don't know it, is that even when there was a whole bunch of things, whether it was sheep or coins, that were protected, that were maintained, that we knew where they were, when there was one missing, the good shepherd or the one who cares goes and looks for the one that needs to be brought back into the big group. And we get together in a church like this, and you may feel like, I don't really belong. (laughs) There's some other people. They seem to know the words on the screen. They seem to know where to turn in the Bible. I don't even know any of this stuff. The whole reason why we do church isn't for 999. And if you're one of the 99, I'm sorry. It's not about you. <laughs> it's not about me. We, could, we, we, already, we already know this stuff. And we're challenged this morning. And we do believe that in this, in this series that our faith will be challenged. And we're going to be uh, just encouraged to, to make sure we know why we believe what we believe and be able to defend our faith and be able to share it with people. But the reason why we do church is for one person who may come in this morning and go, <laughs> I don't really know, but what you're saying makes a little bit of sense and uh, I'm feeling something inside that, that it's true and that it's real. And I just want to pray. For, I'm not going to embarrass anyone this morning, so we're, we're going we're gonna to pray. But if what I'm just saying, if that's you, I'd love to talk with you after the service when not everybody's looking around. And uh, you, can, you can even just send us an email. You can do it. You can leave your name down in the information center. You can send us an email and just say, hey, this, this really spoke to me this morning, and I'd love to just talk a little bit more about it. And please do let us know, because this is why we do, this is why we get together as, as a church, because we believe that, that God's Spirit will speak to us, and His truth is revealed to our hearts. So I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to close, and you can go have a coffee and a cookie and uh, share together, but we've got to take care of this first. Lord, This morning, I pray for the one, the two, the three, however many, that stands in a room like this or listens to a message like this on their phone and and just really doesn't get it all yet, but knows that there's something real there that is important for them. I ask God right now that you just, by the power of your spirit, we believe your spirit and are real, you confirm that in their hearts. And you give them the confidence to tell that to somebody, whether it's a friend that brought them, whether it's a family member that they can trust and they just want to talk it through, whether it's just giving the church a call or an email and saying, this was for me this morning, and thank you, and I'd love to chat a little more about it. I pray, God, give them the confidence this morning. Let them know that you love them so much that you would ignore the needs of the larger group of the church to go after the one who doesn't know yet hasn't been confirmed yet because your word is true and your word is real and it has the power to give us peace when we're stressed, to give us life when we feel like we don't have enough to go on, to give us hope for something eternal that lives beyond us. God, I pray that you just confirm that in their hearts this morning. Thank you for a time that we've been able just to get together like this and be encouraged in your word. And I pray that as people meet, whether it's in a growth group setting or whether it's just with another friend and they talk about this stuff. Lord, I pray our conversations are so rich that we would challenge one another, that we would read as we read the book of Mark or we read in the Life Journal or we read Timothy Keller's book that we would really just have our lives and our faith walk enriched over these next six weeks, God, that we would be different believers and Christ followers than when we started this journey. Thanks so much 
for a day just to be here together and to be with one another. Keep us safe as we go. Keep us as dry as possible. And we just ask that everything we do reflect back good on you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.